1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, uh, one of the Intellectual History Channel hosts, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Monica Nalepa, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Professor Nalepa's research and teaching interests focus on transitional justice, parties and legislatures, and game theoretic approaches to comparative politics. Her first book, the APSA award-winning 2010 Skeletons in the Closet, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Europe, was published in the renowned Cambridge Studies in Comparative Politics series. Her latest book, also with Cambridge University Press, and published this year, After Authoritarianism, Transitional Justice and Democratic Stability. In addition to her published work with Cambridge University Press, the professor has published articles in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science, the Journal of Comparative Politics, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, and Constitutional Political Economy, among many others. Today, we want to talk about Professor Nalepa's writing and research more broadly. And those who have listened to her talk with Dr. Melcher on the latest book, After Authoritarianism, well, no, she's the director of the Transitional Justice and Democratic Stability Lab, which produces the global transitional justice Dataset. Professor Nalepa, Monica, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your writing, teaching and research more broadly, given its increased relevance both inside and outside academia.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again.
1: Thank you, it's nice to finally be able to talk with you. As a place to start, I I wanna ask you about your early days in the transitional justice field of study as a student and research assistant of the renowned professor of political science and political theorist, John Ulster. In his 2004 closing the books, Transitional Justice in Historical Perspective, he acknowledged your invaluable research assistance and of many useful discussions, and and again, uh, as editor in 2006, uh, for retribution and reparation in the transition to democracy, for your and I quote superb research assistance, can you share with us uh, some of your experiences and lessons learned as both student and assistant to John Ulster?
2: Sure. So no, I'm uh, I'm I'm smiling because. Uh, uh, the, my collaboration with Jan is, is definitely one of the things that um, bolstered my interest in transitional justice, but um, but but he he actually had more of a role probably than he realized at the time. Uh, and it's largely because um, he was one of those supervisors who give minimal directions to their uh, research assistants. So uh, when he told me that he's interested in transitional justice processes in Eastern Europe, he told me he's interested in uh, purges, illustrations, Um trials and uh truth commission oh and reparations sorry and uh and and told me just to to go and find information about this and uh, i was a first year phd student so i uh timidly followed up in an email professor elster i'm happy to do this can you can you explain to me in what format you would like this data to be presented and he just answered with a one-liner which i quote from memory well frankly monica i was hoping that you would come up with something so uh, I uh, took that to mean that I actually have to figure out what is the best way of collecting data on transitional justice for various countries in a way that makes it more or less comparable. And that is that was actually the start of what later became the global transitional justice data set. So uh, very intuitively, I just started uh, creating chronologies of transitional justice events, separating out... Uh, the actors that were involved focusing on governmental organizations and separating out different procedures. And then I also divided these events into things that essentially halt transitional justice, so prevent it from happening, and events that uh, advance it. And it turned out that instead of transitional justice, just procedures such as illustrations or purges just being implemented once and for all, and we're done with it, these processes actually have a lot of back and forth and sometimes the final uh, outcome has been unfolding over years if not decades uh so it was actually this experience of of collecting data for closing the books which was not which was not a quantitative study he was jan was basically interested in more of i think a collection of anecdotes uh, that he would um, later use to uh, to develop his theory on transitional justice and historical perspective, but that way of systematizing data actually stuck with me. And later, when I received a grant from the National Science Foundation, that was that was actually the structure that I already had in mind. So it was so I felt that it was thanks to that experience of. Um, of working with Jan, it was a really well thought out data structure. But uh, but Jan was also um, he he was he was sparing in his comments. But when he, he when he offered comments, they were very much to the point. So another huge influence that he had was when he um, when we were discussing a term paper assignment that I had prepared not not even for his class, but it was on transitional justice. So I decided to uh, to share it with him. And I mentioned pacts associated with transitions from communism to democracy that were taking place in um in, in communist Europe, which and ena- that, that enabled actually transitions to, to democracy. And I mentioned just in passing that promised to use of amnesty were given. And he just asked one question in the entire term paper and just wrote it on the margin. Uh, why were those promises credible? And um and I thought to myself, well, yes, they actually should not be credible from everything I learned in game theory. So so he was, uh, I would say he was a, an influence, not by virtue of talking a lot and giving a lot of guidelines and a lot of instructions, and, and definitely not a hands-on advisor, but when he, but his questions did leave an impact, and, uh, and, and I, I don't think that I would have been a scholar of transitional justice had it not been for that experience.
1: Well, wow, that's interesting. Do do you consider Professor Ulster uh, a philosopher, a political theorist, or uh, how do how do you see him?
2: I consider him the last social scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so, so I. So he's a very broad thinker, and uh, you know, and he really can't be classified as either as a philosopher. I mean, certainly some of some of his contributions, you know, to political philosophy, even to. To history of political thought, I mean, I think will have a lasting impact. His uh, his his understanding of de Tocqueville, I think, is you know is is, is unique and and very powerful. Um, but he's he's a very keen observer of comparative politics as well. He's a very uh, you know I, I think he's an excellent historian also. Um, you know, he loves uh, digging through archives and you know uncovering um, things that you know had somehow fallen through the cracks in in the research of other scholars. And you know, here at the University of Chicago, we don't talk about social sciences plural. We we consider it all social science. So I think he's the he's, he's the quintessential sort of like very broad thinker, social scientist. And you know, and definitely remains an inspiration to me. Even though, you know, of course, I criticize a lot of things that he believed in uh, about transitional justice. But you know, that's just the nature of um, uh, you know, of uh, of uh, I guess advisor and student. <laughs>
1: Well, that we can come back to a little bit of that later. Well, let's talk a little bit then uh, about your first book, uh, The 2010 uh, Skeletons in the Closet, uh, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Europe. It, you were the first uh, to apply game theory to transitional justice, and, and you frame your narrative around three puzzles uh, attempting to determine when retribution occurs and 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 you examine uh, the Czech Republic Poland and, and Hungary your your introductory chapter uh, opens with a diary passage written by a student in 1956 who participated in the anti-communist Hungarian uprisings it, it's a brief but gripping description of retribution can you tell us uh, about how you came to choose? The diary entry and and how the data of, um, well, when you have a um, a chapter on elite interviews and and how they are differentiated f- between Czech Republic and Hungary and Poland? Um, you built on many things uh, with uh, your elite driven hypotheses. I realize that there's a lot there, but just trying to encourage you um, uh, to share uh, some of why your first book was important to laying the groundwork for further research and, and your latest book.
2: Yeah, sure. So the passage, I, I, now I actually remember why I found it. So I was revising my, dissert, my doctoral dissertation towards the book uh, as an assistant professor at Rice University. And Rice University is, you know, not a school that many uh, associate with uh, social sciences or, you know, um, or intense study of Eastern Europe. So they didn't actually have a huge collection of books on Eastern Europe and history of communism there. And I, I think I had just gone to my library card and was browsing the shelves and, you know, picked up a book that I had never seen before. And uh, it, it was a very short book by Lashla Bekash, And I started reading it that right there in the library. And when I read that description, it stuck with me because it, uh, it summarizes what happens if transitional justice is treated in a cursory fashion. So uh, any, any, any thing that one does with former authoritarian elites and their collaborators is an act of transitional justice. Going Doing nothing is also an act of transitional justice. And uh, doing nothing sometimes leads to, you know, scenes like uh, the one described in my first book or the scene from the cover of my second book, namely um, citizens uh, frustrated with former authoritarian leaders and their collaborators taking things into their own hands. And just exacting justice as they see fit. So, what transitional justice does is it basically takes this this demand for uh, accountability and uh, sort of confronts what can be done in these very um, volatile conditions associated with with any regime transition and, uh, and, 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 and modifies those demands to what actually is feasible, given the circumstances. So, uh, so yeah, so the, the, there was a previous version of the book where I opened with the passage of the uh, the shooting of Mussolini, after he was uh, caught by, um, uh, by the communist opposition after the fascist government had fallen and i and i played around with opening with one rather than the other but the the excerpt from the diary in the end made it to the to the the beginning of the book so uh yeah so the first book basically just explained it focused on elites largely out of necessity because although many of the former communist countries had passed legislation sanctioning the creation of archives of the secret police that would collect all the information that had been collected over the past decades by the secret police in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, many of those archives were not yet organized, were not systematized, certainly were not available in digital format as they are now. So the only way basically of of, provide, of finding evidence for theories of transitional justice was to focus on elites. And fortunately, you know, there is a very um, popular um a subfield of of democratization or of democratic transitions within comparative politics, namely elite pacts. So, elite pacts are you know a completely legitimate way of transitioning from authoritarianism to democracy, uh, and they actually happen to also be the the dominant form of transitions in Eastern Europe. So, uh, you know, barely twenty years after the transitions had taken place, many of those people who had actually participated in those packs were still alive. So it was actually possible to uh, to get to them, uh, again, through a very generous grant from the National Science Foundation and uh, interview them through these semi-structured interviews. And uh, I have to say that that year spent in the field of, you know, just traveling through Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic and tracking down, um, you know, folks who had been actually negotiating democratic transitions from this awful communist authoritarian system you know on both sides both on the you know on the communist side so so you know communist party members who were who were prepared to transition to democracy, as well as their former opposition, who was ready to negotiate the transition. That was one of the the best years of my life as a social scientist. You know, it was it was absolutely thrilling, and I'm very happy that I still have the the transcripts of these these interviews. And you know, there were of course many ways that I could have used them uh, in the book, but. Um, you know, I, I chose to, to 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 use that that fraction of them. So yeah, so the focus on on elites was largely because of necessity. There wasn't much other data. It was only data that one could go out into the field and collect for oneself, which is not the case now. So I'm just highlighting that for future researchers. Um, now there is probably more data than any single scholar could could possibly analyze. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that you talked about, I think, in in, in one of the early chapters. Is uh, the kidnapper's dilemma? Um, is there an easy explanation for for that, like a one hundred and one version that, that you can share?
2: Oh, so uh, so yeah, there there is now. Uh, so I'm so you mentioned my work with Professor Ang, but uh, in our earlier conversation, but um, I actually have an article coming out in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science with uh, Professor Konstantin Sonin here from the University of Chicago but from the the Harris School of Public Policy where we have solved the kidnappers dilemma mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so the the kidnappers dilemma in short is that you know we should never observe kidnappers demanding uh, ransom from for for releasing victims because regardless of whether the the ransom is paid out uh or not the kidnapper still does not have an incentive to release the victim because uh, he w- once he's got got the ransom in his hand, releasing the victim can only make things worse for him because the victim can can rat him out to the police. So um, so the promises made as a result of kidnapping are just never credible, and uh, that's the fundamental problem with blackmail. How is blackmail blackmail possible? So in Skeletons in the Closet, the the kidnapper's dilemma was basically solved by by showing that well, it's not quite the kidnapper's dilemma. Because the kidnapper has somehow convinced the victim that um, that ratting him out to the police will actually be costly to the, for the victim, because in this case the the, the, the former opposition is not encouraged to uh, start implementing transitional justice against the former autocrats because it will implicate itself. So so it kind of relies on this fact, not just assumption, but this fact that many of the collaborators of the secret police were actually members of opposition parties themselves. So um, so embarking on a large, wide, wide-scale program of transitional justice could actually tarnish their own reputation. And uh, even if there was a little bit of uncertainty about the extent to which this collaboration had occurred, that was sufficient incentive to prevent them from implementing transitional justice. Um, but there are, there are other ways, actually, of, of solving the kidnapper's dilemma. And uh, one of them is to um, just inject a little bit of uncertainty about uh, the, the, the type of... Of the the person who is being uh, who is being blackmailed. So this is a this is an idea that I explore with Professor Konstantin Sonin in an article that will shortly uh, be published in the Quarterly Journal of Political Science, which is published by uh, Now Publishers.
1: Nice, great. Thanks for for sharing that. Uh, in part two of the book, uh, the issue of timing uh, comes up uh, with regard to the question of why. Uh, Poland and Hungary uh, didn't adopt transitional justice measures sooner. In, in this case, as you mentioned, uh, the mechanism was lustration, uh, and it was not until 1997. But timing and transitional justice, how how is it important to your research?
2: Yeah, so um, in, the, um, in, the, in, the, in the theory of pacted transitions, the idea is that during these pacts, the outgoing autocrats convince the incoming members of the opposition that transitional justice will be harmful for them because it will implicate them. And the opposition believes them It believes them because it it's basically, um, it's part of the anti authoritarian resistance that has reasons to think that yes, indeed, it's possible that they were infiltrated because they were sort of like the more open part of the opposition, um, who actually, you know, were able to be identified by communists in the first place to invite to the roundtable negotiations but aside from from this sort of like more open opposition or more civil society kind of opposition there was also a much more um I, i hesitate to use the word militant opposition but a more radical opposition that would never sit down with communists to negotiate transition to democracy because they wouldn't negotiate anything with communists they in fact you know, hardly could stop themselves from actually violent uh, resistance against against the communists. And though that part of the opposition was largely unknown uh, to the even to the secret police and uninfiltrated by the secret police, so the secret police actually didn't even know sometimes of like some pockets of that radical opposition. Now, the the difference between that those radical opposition members and the sort of like more open, uh, closer to the surface opposition members was that the radical ones had no fear of infiltration. So they could be completely free in demanding transitional justice following the transition to democracy because it couldn't hurt them as it could hurt the opposition. Moreover, in a parliamentary system where, um, you know, parties that are competing for voters are not parties that are very different from one another, but rather parties that share programs. Having transitional justice implemented, that would even expose some members of the former sort of like closer to the surface opposition was beneficial for the radical oppositionists because that left them as the only legitimate opposition still capable of attracting votes. So we see that scenario actually playing out very well, both in Poland and Hungary, where initially the post solidarity parties kind of hung out all together as one, you know, happy camp of anti-communist parties. They formed uh, government coalitions together um, on a number of occasions, they resisted the successor communist parties together. Uh, but gradually um, there started appearing cracks and fragmentation in that um, former opposition camp. So in Poland, that was the separation of the civic platform and the law and justice party who started very close to one another programmatically, but then sort of parted their separate ways. And in Hungary that was the separation of estas and Fides. So Fides started out as the youth organization of the free Democrats, the the S-S party. So the youth organization uh, arguably, shared the same policy preferences as their, say, adult version of the party. But over time, these two parties started separating, and Fidesz became more and more radical, and similarly peace became more and more, moving more and more more in the the rightest direction. And while at the same time advancing calls for a complete breakup with uh, agreements made at the roundtable negotiations, reckoning with the communist past, and in Poland, uh, this actually connects to the most recent trend in democratic backsliding, Because one of the pretexts that Jarosław Kaczyński and his co-partisans used to implement judicial reforms and cleanse the judiciary of judges affiliated with the more liberal uh, opposition was the call for a radical break with communist tainted judges. So they basically used this lack of transitional justice that was left behind by the initial opposition parties uh, to, uh, to implement harsh transitional justice later on.
1: And the Polish uh, example is something you grew up with.
2: Um, so grew up with to an extent. So I left Poland in 2000 uh, to come to graduate school and to get my PhD at Columbia. But, the, the, but I did grow up in the early 90s in, uh, in Poland. So the, So I basically grew up in an atmosphere of intense demand for transitional justice and sort of not enough delivery of it. And it definitely was something that was very much uh, front and center. And, you know, what, what one could hear often were, were the calls for the liberal uh, opposition for, for adopting what, what was called the Spanish model at the time. So now it's, it's not, no longer relevant because Spain has actually embarked on its own transitional justice program decades later, as I outline in uh, After Authoritarianism. But uh, but at the time, it was actually seen as an example of moving on and um, and heading towards the future, and you know letting bygones be bygones. So the first cabinets that were created after transition to uh, democracy in Poland uh, advocated restraint in transitional justice.
1: Would that be a, a a situation or a point where you would diverge from uh, Professor Ulster? In terms of, I, I I would assume that he he would see the Spanish example or the Spanish model as uh, something he would concur with.
2: Yeah, so so he endorsed the Spanish. Mo- in fact, so so Jan had before I came to the graduate school, he had actually traveled uh, throughout Eastern Europe and he um, he met with many of these liberal opposition uh, members, and um, this was part of his project on constitution making in Eastern Europe. And he heard their complaints about these calls for transitional justice that are witch hunts, et cetera. So I think he was very much um, captured by these arguments. There's definitely some truth in the argument that many of these calls for transitional justice came from um, people who were trying to virtue signal, right? So, So under an authoritarian regime, you know, who's a member of the opposition and who's not a member of the opposition is not always entirely clear because the opposition is conspired, right? So it's underground. And uh, after the transition to democracy, when, uh, of course, you know, acts of former resistance are rewarded with political positions, political clout, and so on, it's definitely very attractive to have those opposition credentials. So demands for transitional justice was sometimes used as a way of signaling, I was a member of the opposition, now I'm demanding transitional justice. And uh so so one of the keen observations that he made, I thought, was that, you know, many of these calls from transition for transitional justice came from people who actually weren't that much into the in the opposition. They weren't that active. But now, you know, they thought that by demanding punishment, they are they're actually going to be able to convince the public that they were more resistance fighters than they actually were. So I'm not saying that all the calls for transitional justice were legitimate. Uh, but what rather what I'm saying is that uh not doing anything uh with Legacies of the former authoritarian regime allows uh, secrets of that authoritarian regime to later be used to the detriment of democratic stability. Because the collaborate former collaborators are out there, no matter what. The public resents uh, snitches, right? I mean, I think this is universal. Our uh, our our, our mistrust of politicians who who uh, in the past had claimed to be somebody, but in fact were somebody were, were completely different, our resistance to electing such pol- such politicians into office is is universal. So these skeletons in the closet, even if they're not exposed initially, will still be undermining democracy later on. So the, the option of just doing nothing is is not really an option. It's also a choice that will have consequences in the future. And I think that was something that, um, that either Jan missed or maybe it was just not on his radar. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, well, the... Uh... Uh, your point about snitches um, even in the hierarchy of the prison system it's uh it's right up there in the uh the moral code right Uh, exactly so as i mentioned though we were talking about the the first book or i mentioned the first book earlier skeletons in the closet transitional justice in in post-communist europe it received awards from the american uh, political science association The usual series of book reviews followed, and um, Professor Lavinia Stan was especially supportive of of your efforts, uh, which is no small feat, I I felt, uh, coming from another scholar uh, from Eastern Europe like yourself. You had, though, an interesting exchange, I thought, uh, with another scholar who approaches the field more qualitatively, which kind of oversimplifies things, um, and I only bring it up uh, because you responded to some points made in the review, uh, including um, uh, one uh, that had to do with your, your use of um, a rational choice theory. Hey, do you mind outlining just generally how you responded only because um, I think it adds to our understanding of, of how, how much ground you really covered uh, in that book?
2: Yeah. So I think this was like my my decade old now exchange with uh, Professor James Gibson from Washington University. And, you know, he's not a qualitative scholar. He's actually um, I mean, he's a a broad scholar, but he's, I think, most famous for uh, conducting a series of surveys. in, uh, in in South Africa, about uh, the effects of uh, to, to uncover the effects of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was created there, and then I you know and I'm a huge fan of of his work in South Africa, so so I was actually initially very um, excited to be uh, to be invited to the critical dialogue by Jeff Isaac and um, and you know and to to read one another's books and and, and have that exchange, um, and I, I think I knew about his skepticism about rational choice and you know i maybe should have asked myself the question why hasn't anybody used game theoretic models to explain transitional justice before and you know and realized that there will be resistance to it you know so the points that he raised were really not all that surprising right so rational choice takes preferences as given you know it doesn't really um explain whether such preferences are good, bad, whether they, you know, are legitimate and so on. And, and then, you know, it points out consequences of those preferences given, you know, certain social situations that, uh, you know, can be modeled as um, sets of actions among players. And that is essentially what I did. I tried to, ex- I, you know, I, fi- I found a puzzle, something that in light of what we know from rational choice is puzzling, that uh, former autocrats, would step down from power, believing that the opposition will spare them transitional justice, uh, and that the opposition actually spares them transitional justice. That was just given the fact that the opposition should, according to everything we know, want to punish former autocrats, that the autocrats should want to avoid that punishment, and third, that those autocrats should be able to anticipate that once they're powerless, the punishment would come. It just made no sense that these roundtable negotiations happened and worked. So, you know, so so there was not really much in that analysis about whether human rights violations should be punished, or whether they should not be punished, what victims' rights are, and so on. Victims essentially did not feature there at all. And, you know, I'm definitely not somebody who thinks that rational choice models should be used universally in all political situations. You know, I think that when stakes are low, or like when um, citizens or re- regular voters, you know, just don't have much at stake um, when deciding whether to engage in some political behavior or not. You know, rational choice models are not necessarily uh, useful. But when it comes to elites, whose you know, whose fate is determined at that negotiating table, not just whether they will be able to continue in political office, but whether they will be able to do anything at all, right? So. Post-communist purges could have reached very, very far. They actually have an incentive to behave rationally. And that was the, the argument that I was trying to lay out. But uh but I, I did get some pushback from you know being uh being completely deaf to the normative uh reasons for embarking on transitional justice. And this still happens to this day, I have to say. So a lot of people, when they, you know, when they see that, oh, this is a book about transitional justice, expect that this is going to be something about you know, uh, describing the atrocities that happened and formulating like what should happen to make victims of those atrocities whole. And that's just not something that I have tackled in any of my books because regardless of whether victims can be made whole again, uh, authoritarian legacies have to be dealt with from the point of view of democratic stability in the first place. So we don't end up being in this cycle of regime change
0: essentially.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting too. I, I think uh, in terms of your association with uh, Professor Ulster and how you guys approach things differently, but uh, and yet uh, in in a complementary fashion, you know, um, there's an um, influential series of research uh, that that would be uh, well aware of in in the transitional justice field uh, that dates back to 1995, and there's three volumes under the editorship of Neil Kritz, the first of which was Transitional Justice, How Emerging Democracies Reckon with Former Regimes. I, I mention it because uh, your mentor contributed a piece uh, titled o- On Doing What One Can, An Argument Against Post-Communist uh, Restitution and Retribution. And, and I certainly don't expect you to remember its details, uh, but I'm interested in, in your own thinking in terms of how it may have changed or evolved, if at all, uh, regarding Professor Elster's argument that retribution and restitution should target everybody or nobody.
2: Yeah, so so, so that was an article where uh, he really focused on the backward-looking aspects of transitional justice, right? So um, I think that that's one of the, the, the parts where we uh, – I mean – you know, I, definitely transitional justice does have backward-looking uh, uh, functions. And that's, the, I think those those calls are absolutely legitimate. My work is actually on the forward-looking aspects of transitional justice, right? So the regardless of what should be done, what are the consequences of having illustration law? The consequences of having illustration law is that all the skeletons of the clo- in the closet or most skeletons in the closet are exposed and black wa- blackmail with compromats is made impossible if blackmail with compromise is made impossible that's one less source of uh, corruption that politicians can engage with i mean that's that's just a good thing similarly if uh you know if purges of of agents of the enforcement apparatus target people who have expertise in um, you know anything from crowd control to you know, managing land, managing forests, you know, and it just happens that they had worked for the former authoritarian regime. Those purges will have negative consequences because whoever is appointed in their place is not trained. And even with the best intentions, they may implement, you know, the wrong policies. On the flip side, you know, purges of people who were appointed because of their loyalism to the previous autocrat and not for any particular skill set, those purges are probably desirable because they don't have any expertise that will be lost in the process. So in my approach to transitional justice is to look at the forward looking consequences of adopting different mechanisms, which does not you know, necessarily preclude engaging in other transitional justice mechanisms that have that backward looking approach. But I think in that article, one of the things that Jan pointed out is that selective retribution and selective restitution does have negative consequences. And that's simply because of victim envy. Right. So so victims are made aware of what is due to them when they observe other victims being compensated. And that we certainly saw in Poland in the early 90s. Right. So so the communist regime largely uh, precluded individual compensation, even for uh, for suffering during uh, World War II from the hands of Nazis. So many of those claims started being um, filed and then cashed uh, in the 90s. And uh, I remember even among members of my family there were people who got their compensation checks and others who did not, and those who did not never had a grievance before, until they learned that their neighbor got a check. So you know, so I think there was a lot of truth in, in that.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I probably could have set the um, the broader framework for that a little better. I, I, because part of his concern, of course, was punishing the wrong people and and that um, informers versus regular collaborators. And, and also the problem uh, where he pointed out that uh, you had this problem of punishing top officials on the basis of uh, collective guilt, which he found uh, repugnant. So his response to both issues was really a general amnesty, or, or as you refer to it uh, in, in your work as let a sleeping dogs lie.
2: Yeah, so Jan was very much into like, either either all the archives should be sealed, or they should all be open. <laughs> One of those two extremes. And I don't, yeah, I mean, I think that all the secrets should be exposed. That's probably a good idea. But I don't know that the the sealing of archives is, I mean, as a theoretical exercise, maybe uh, it, that would be a good solution. But the the problem is that, you know, some of the contents of the archives had already made it out before anybody was in a position to make transitional justice decisions.
1: Yeah, well, okay. Uh, hey, so thanks for sharing. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot there. I thought, but I think it's a, it, it's an interesting course. contrast with uh, with you and Professor Elster. So I, I want to switch genres here a little bit. You've contributed, as I mentioned, uh, to many um, scholarly publications over the years, and it seems somewhat fitting uh, in relation to the previous question, where you uh, mentioned uh, Professor Gibson's response uh, to skeletons. Uh, that you have a chapter with your um, University of Chicago colleague, Professor Ong, uh, in the Oxford Handbook of Transitional Justice, titled, What Can Quantitative and Formal Models Teach Us About Transitional Justice? It is really informative uh, within the first paragraph. Um, The footnotes alone, um, you've already provided a nice introduction uh, to the set of literature of subfields of uh, transitional justice. Um, you make a point, though, when you wrote, and I quote, political scientists using advanced quantitative or formal methods have at best token representation among scholars of transitional justice. Can Can you take some time here to explain to listeners the subfields of transitional justice as you and Professor Ong laid them out and? More importantly, how quantitative models can complement
2: the existing scholarship? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, so transitional justice is simply the set of mechanisms that are adopted uh, following transition from authoritarian rule, usually to democracy, sometimes following uh, conflicts such as civil war to reckon with uh, perpetrators uh, of human rights violations, leaders of former authoritarian regimes, as well as their agents of repression and collaborators. And any any st- any scholarship that deals with those mechanisms falls under the transitional justice rubric and any normative or positivist questions that are asked in that context. Um, now, when Professor Aang and I were writing that chapter for the handbook, uh, there were indeed very few contributions to transitional justice from uh, that, that used either methods of causal identification of and used large data sets or uh, formal models. But that has actually changed in the recent years. So one of the so even this summer, I learned of several new uh, attempts to uh, actually answer uh, questions of transitional justice using historical data. And this is varied from from, from investigations of how um, judges following World War II in Germany, also judges who were trained in Nazi Germany, um, engaged in sentencing uh, Nazi criminals and how their sentences actually varied depending on when and how long they were trained by the Nazi regime. So there, there's, there's a working paper, a phenomenal working paper by George Van Berg, and Holger Kern on that that has not yet been published but probably soon uh, will be there's uh there's another article uh by a group of scholars by uh Tokait uh, Jean Lacroix and Pierre uh, Meon. and this is a book about uh, sorry this is an article about uh political purges uh in post World War II France and it uh and it basically talks about uh who was given an exception from a mandatory purge uh, of, uh, of people who basically sanctioned uh, the Vichy regime. And this is also an article that uses a large uh, quantitative data set. So I would say that there are, and, you know, those are just two examples of working papers that were written this summer. And I had, you know, and I had the pleasure of reading because they they came through my desk. Oh, sorry, there's a, also an, a, an already published paper in the American Journal of Political Science about uh, secret police agents in, in Argentina and uh, and, the, and their purges. So there's 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 simply so much work that has come out in the last few years since we wrote that piece that it almost seems unnecessary now. But uh, but our argument was basically that the, the the field of transitional justice seemed to be sort of filled with speculations about how different mechanisms work and what their effects are. And to, in this day and age, with so much data available and so much data, you know, with the possibility of creating large data sets. And with, uh, you know, the research designs that uh, the field of causal inference and statistics has provided us with, we actually have tools of combining sophisticated research designs with large data sets to answer, uh, you know, specific questions that theories of transitional justice have posited. So there seemed to be just, um, on the one hand, not enough effort given to um rigorous presentation of, of those uh, transitional justice theories on the one hand and on the other hand not enough effort in publishing research designs that test those theories so that was that was the the point of the article
1: yeah i know you guys made some uh, some good points there i thought it was an interesting read and,
2: thank you um,
1: you know uh, the...
2: i hope it will come out soon i don't think the the, the volume is published yet uh, yeah, I, I think it's you know, about to be published
1: Okay, sure. You know it's funny. It some of the things that I come across in 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 your work and and in transitional justice more broadly, I find myself at times going back to uh, Daniel Goldhagen's Hitler's uh, Willing Executioners,
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: think it's I think it's in part due to Professor Ulster's work as well, right? That that seems like. Um, there's a connection uh, there, and that Goldhagen was on onto on something early on. But, but again, it, you know, making sense of it's another is another story in terms of um, actually quantifying some bit of knowledge where we can move forward on uh, in terms of saying, hey, this this was real uh, and not just some you know intuition. Uh, that, that that someone had. L- let me t- uh, say this, a- a- as noted uh, in much of your work, trust also plays a key role uh, in transitional justice. Um, and I, that seems obvious enough um, throughout um, some of the work that uh, people will read as they, they go through the field uh, or go through the literature, I should say. Um, but the actual playing out of trust on the ground is in some ways a profoundly different matter um, one of your colleagues in the field and and you reference uh her in I'm I'm pretty sure it's after authoritarianism your latest book Professor Cynthia horn mm-hmm. um, yeah, she's focused on some of her work on trust building in transitional regimes. how does her research uh complement Jerome do you think
2: yeah I think so, so I'm really glad that to have a chance to to refer to her so um I think that she she's made one of the key observations about the effects of lustration. Um, in, and this is in a, in a chapter with uh, with Margaret Levy, and but it's also mentioned in her in her t- 2017 book, which is that lustration has the tendency to increase trust in democratic institutions. And this is for all the reasons that, among others, that I mentioned in my work on blackmail, where you know exposing skeletons in the closet makes it impossible for dishonest politicians to run for office. Dishonest in the sense of having been former collaborators. But at the same time, Wild scale illustrations that actually reveal everybody who was an informer and who collaborated in any form with the secret police reduce trust among people in society. Right. So uh, one can see how it's beneficial to know if, you know, your representative was a collaborator of the secret police. But you really have to know who among all the people you worked with, all the people you studied with, all the people who are in your family. Wasn't informed of the secret police. I mean, that just makes you second guess all your relationships. Um, so I think she pinpoints that trade off, which um, you know is I think one that you know we have to ask ourselves. Like maybe sometimes it's better to just not know, right? This is the eternal Ibsenian from Henrik Ibsen dilemma. You know, is it is it better to just let some of the secrets be buried or is it better to unearth them? Uh, and illustration, one of the byproducts of illustration could be that. Uh, That that it disarticulates societies because it makes people uh, just aware of how common uh, snitching, we can just use that word, was.
1: Well, and you're right. uh, It was your reference to Professor Horn's work. What was the 2017 building of truth and democracy? Um, Yeah. So one of the reasons I mentioned that, or to to, to build on what you said, was that illustration. Uh, one of her findings was that lustration does not enhance trust in political parties. And it seems at least tangentially related to the question I want to ask you now. Uh, so kind of a setup there in, in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, hey, when you think about uh, the January 6th commission, right, headed by... Uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Um, how does it fit, do you think, uh, in your broader calculus of transition mechanisms? That is, it, it seems like a kind of truth commission and transitional justice does seem front and center uh, at being at issue. How do you think your expertise regarding uh, regime transitions and and transparency can play a role in understanding you know what transpired there?
2: Yeah. So, um, so the United States was not a case in the transitional in the global transitional justice data set, because ever since its independence, at least according to all the data sets that we used, it has been a continuous democracy. Uh, but that is uh, actually quite misleading as a federal um, system. There are parts of the United States that, you know, when we just look at the conditions on the ground, the the ability for all citizens to uh, contest and participate in democratic elections, it was not a fully democratic regime. And uh, there have been attempts of uh, holding to account acts of violence against against minorities, particularly blacks in the South. And there have been a number of local efforts of creating truth commissions. But if it were, were not treated as a democracy, then uh, the event that happened on January 6, 2020, during the certification of the Electoral College vote for Joe Biden, then it actually would make its way to our, our global transitional justice data set, because it was a it was an act of violence that was committed uh, within uh, democratic institutions of a, of a country. So, uh, so the call for transparency is absolutely accurate. So the, the January 6th commission is essentially a truth commission. Uh, and, uh, you know, and all of the things that were unearthed during the proceedings of that commission uh, have absolutely the, the consequences of revealing skeletons in the closet that, if not revealed, could have been, you know, used later. So especially when it comes to uh, the engagement of, you know, uh, different members of the administration and, you know, potentially members of the the, of the Republican Party. Right. So so anything that was unearthed as a result of the January 6th commission is you know is an act of, as an act of transparency is beneficial for democratic stability but of course it's painful and the, the process of revelation is no doubt painful and uh you know one would hope that it gets um more i guess appreciation uh on you know in both parties But I think, you know, like the effects that transparency has, if you look at the experiences of Eastern Europe, you know, illustration had the effect of disintegrating certain parties. I mean, certain parties simply learned that they had so many collaborators that it was not feasible for them to compete in elections anymore. So it's not really surprising that, you know, one side of the political scene in the United States is very upset with the proceedings of the January 6th Commission. But uh, that doesn't mean that if those proceedings had not happened, that party would be in good shape in the future. I don't think it would be in good shape in the future because the acts of um, involvement in the almost coup could have been used as a political compromise.
1: Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And um, and I wanted to kind of try to connect a couple things here. The, the classified top secret documents that were recently confiscated from former President Trump, is this not a kind of indicator on its own? It reminds me a bit of Ibsen's, like, as you mentioned, uh, a dull and, and you talk about that in chapter nine and after authoritarianism. So, but my point here is is to say, or to ask, government documentation that's assembled uh, for future bargaining, or as you made the point, for its utility, as an instrument of blackmail—is that what we're not, you know, positing that? It's just that um, the, it, it all seems to kind of fall in place a bit.
2: Oh no, it, it does absolutely. And when I mentioned that, you know, when we were talking about Jan Elster, that the ceiling of archives uh, for posterity is not an option. It is—it is precisely because secret police agents of the secret police had removed personnel files of their informers. Uh, as they were fired from office. So as the agencies were being closed down, I think up to, a, the, the, there was a prime, not a prime, a minister of defense in the 90s, Radoslav Sikorsky, who guesstimated that about a quarter of the personnel files had either been copied or simply removed from the buildings, <laughs> the secret police buildings, as uh, the former agents were just leaving work. So so this is officials, especially of states that have ceased to exist, are notorious for stealing documents. And you know, I am almost afraid to say that for my for for the next book that I'm writing, which is a very a micro study of purges of street agents of the secret police uh, in Poland, we've been my I and my co-author have been uh, traveling around um, the country and meeting with members of uh, regional verification commissions, and shockingly, some of them have brought documents from the proceedings of those commissions from 30 years ago, that should not be in their possession. But they just hang on to it because there's some, um, I don't know, some compelling attraction to uh, to basically, you know, holding on to things that might turn out to be, you know, valuable compliment, I think. <laughs> but what else? I mean, why else would you take it home with you, right? So, yeah, I don't really... I think that you're you're absolutely on the right track. That you know there there, there was some um, some not completely moral purpose of extracting those documents.
1: Sure. Well, no, I appreciate your um, weighing in on that, Monica. And hey, your books and articles uh, draw on many uh, primary and secondary sources. Hey, do you have a a few book recommendations for listeners that are interested in? quantitative and comparative approaches to transitional justice uh, more broadly.
2: Yeah, so I actually have some uh, recommendations for books about authoritarian regimes which uh, hint at transitional justice, but I think uh, understanding the need for transitional justice really rests on understanding you know where authoritarian regimes uh, come from and how they function. So the first is uh, is a book by Annie Meng. Professor Annie Meng is a, a political scientist at the University of Virginia. And she wrote a book, Constraining Autocracy, a couple of years ago. It also came out with Cambridge University Press. And uh, what it talks about is what kind of autocracies are durable, and what and how durable autocracies are organized. So uh, it's a it's a fantastic book. Uh, has uh, both game theoretic models and quantitative analysis, following a very cleverly put together research design. Another book I wanted to recommend is a book by Bryn Rosenfeld. Uh, Professor Bryn Rosenfeld is uh, a political scientist at Cornell University, and she wrote a book called The Authoritarian Middle Class, which was uh, published by Princeton University Press. And it's a book uh, about the post-Soviet space. So uh, it talks about several countries that uh, resulted from the breakup of the Soviet Union that have not successfully transitioned to democracy. And the reason that they have not is because the autocrats there have stabilized their support by essentially bribing the middle class uh, with jobs in the state apparatus. Uh, so they've made the middle class, the the top intellectuals, best educated citizens, dependent on the state, which happens to be an authoritarian state. It's a very engaging book that uh, you know rings true to anybody who's lived in Eastern Europe or, or Russia, as I have. And um, also very well argued with uh, tons of data from different sources, both original uh, government documents as well as surveys. So that's the second book. And then I am reading right now uh, a book by um, uh, Daniel Treisman and Sergei Guriev, Spin Dictators, which uh, maybe you've uh, heard about, maybe you've already featured it on your uh, on your podcast, uh, it's a book about the changing nature of authoritarianism in the um, in the in the recent decades. About how, whereas in the past dictators uh, were very uh, obvious in the brute force that they used to stay in power, and you know almost manifested you know the the gruesome acts of torture that they um, carried out. and and spread terror, how uh, today's dictators uh, have changed. They wear suits, they use surveillance, they use infiltration, they use propaganda, and they try to build legitimacy by actually being... uh, if not loved, then, you know, at least re-elected by their, by citizens in, you know, elections that look so much like fair elections, although they're really not. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. The difference between that book and the, the first two I mentioned is that it's written for a much more popular audience. So it, it can, um, it can be read without reading the footnotes. So I would, I would say those, those three, most of my favorite books are about authoritarian regimes. So, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll stop there.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, you know, and just as kind of a question that, that kind of popped up as, as you were talking, going back to the democratic backsliding issue. Uh, do you have a country in particular that you feel like when someone says democratic backsliding, the light kind of lights up on their part of the atlas?
2: I'm probably Venezuela. You know, is the case where we just saw the whole thing play out very clearly, and then Hungary, Turkey, Poland. Yeah, that's Poland. Probably is the weakest case. I mean, in that it's salvageable, <laughs> but um, but yeah, but but Venezuela, Hungary would be would be probably my top two.
1: Sure. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Professor Monica Lipa, uh, thanks for so much uh, for taking the time to share your expertise and and really interesting background and experiences um, as a kind of prequel uh, to your recent interview uh, with uh, Miranda Melcher covering your most recent book, After Authoritarianism, Transitional Justice and Democratic Stability, as well as uh, your American Political Science Association award-winning 2010 uh, Skeletons in the Closet, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Europe, both published by uh, Cambridge University Press.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It was uh, it was a pleasure to to speak about both books and transitional justice more broadly.
1: Great. Thanks so much.